0: Just one <laughs>
1: but we did it and we're here Hi guys, coming to you straight up from season 3 Welcome to season 3 Season 3 of the place to be, we're here, you're here, and we're all happy about it Yes
2: Yeah And this show would not be possible without you, our listeners And so thank you so much for sticking with us over this entire year We want to give a very special thanks to our donors Our one-time donors Lena from New York Rebecca and Sam from West Virginia Sailor and Laura from Oregon Mara from Massachusetts Jonathan and Alexis from Brooklyn Rebecca from North Carolina Laura from Australia, Alexandra from San Francisco, Emily from Toronto, Sharon from New Jersey, Josephine from London, Amanda from Pennsylvania, Molly from Glasgow, and our monthly donors who give a little bit every single month, Katie, Maureen, Laura, Melissa, and Faye. And if you're interested in supporting the show, you can go to shedoespodcast.com slash about and you will see how you can do that through PayPal. And this season, we have some awesome guests for you, like the Cocoon Central Dance Team, Andrea Sisson, Mo Scarpelli, and Alexandria Bomback from the film Frame by Frame. And we also have some live events coming up. On November 1st, we have one in New York at the Magnum Foundation, and in February, we have one in Miami. So subscribe to our newsletter at shedoespodcast.com slash contact to get the details on those events and follow us
1: on Twitter at She Does Podcast. Okay, let's kick off season three.
0: I think it is an obligation also of people who are successful to pass along what they know to other people. I don't think it's like charity to be nice. Because you know the other thing too is that um, I will be old someday, I will be irrelevant. When I look at the prospects for like older women being seen as culturally relevant and important, I see fewer job prospects for myself.
1: Welcome to She Does Podcast. I'm Elaine Sheldon. And I'm Sarah Ginsberg. And today, we're bringing you a conversation with writer Anne Friedman. She's an independent freelance journalist who lives and works in L.A. She's a weekly contributor to New York magazine's The Cut. I
0: write a column about politics and gender
1: and sometimes pop culture. She reviews books for Book Forum and The New Republic and writes for a dozen other places like The Guardian and Refinery29.
0: And I write essays for a magazine called The Baffler. And I would do interviews with women for um, this UK magazine called The Gentlewoman. I write various features for Elle. (laughs) I could go on and on. There's a bunch of little things that I do all across the board. And I'm also a podcaster. I co-host a podcast with my friend Aminatu So.
2: That podcast is called Call Your Girlfriend. And she describes it as a
1: podcast for long-distance besties everywhere. Anne sums up her week. What she's written, what she's reading, listening to, watching. In her popular weekly newsletter, The Anne Friedman Show. It's great. You should subscribe. As an independent maker myself, I've really enjoyed
2: sitting down with Anne and talking about the perils of freelancing and the importance of self-driven projects, as well as the responsibility of mentoring. Anne understands the importance of developing your own voice, and she understands how our shifting landscape has changed how people consume the media we create and how having a personal connection and point of view allows the readers an entry point into trusting your voice. And Anne, she's trusted by many, and in particular, many women. Much of her work is written for women, understanding their issues.
0: I think that women in particular have a tendency to sort of say, like, oh, this is tough because I'm not good enough. Or, like, this seems seems kind of unfair, but, like, really it's because I didn't make the right choice six months ago that one time in this really specific. You know, I, I, a lot of women I know fit the mold of blaming themselves for stuff that they probably have some role in, but like, you know, stepping back and sort of saying, oh wow, this is like the big social picture and, and the constraints that are on you and you're not crazy is, is something that that I try to do. And also just like treating women like we're, we're all smart <laughs> equals, you know? There is like a certain amount of like being the change that that I think has been a traditional failure of a lot of media aimed at women. Like listen up girls is like not a tone that like any woman really <laughs> really likes. It's more just like hey. they <laughs> to look you in the eye and talk to you like a real human.
2: Anne takes a broad view of storytelling and embraces everything from long form to gifts to her popular newsletter to pie charts to do-it-yourself projects that eventually lead to paychecks. And being a journalist for Anne means something different than most traditional journalists. It's the career that allows her to be a curious person and learn about the world, to follow things that interest her and resonate with her, because it's likely they'll resonate with others.
0: I don't really have like a huge inflated sense of my importance to the world as a journalist in particular. I think that like, it's like I bring journalistic skills to bear on this like other project that is both feminist but also more about connecting people and telling good stories.
1: Anne's been telling stories her whole life. It started in Iowa, where she grew up, about three hours from Chicago.
0: It is very white and very Catholic. I didn't meet anyone who didn't fit those descriptions until I was like probably a teenager.
1: As a kid, she read a lot, and she had an extensive vocabulary.
0: I was that kid who knew the meaning of more words than she knew how to pronounce. You know, oh, there's there's just such a chasm between me and you. I'm like, okay, I know what it means. (laughs) I want to use my, you know, words words that people I grew up around don't actually use in conversation. I was probably a little bit annoying on that front. I was also you know reprimanded for bringing a book to recess multiple times I was not an outdoor kid or an athletic child
2: (laughs) you're tall how tall are you
0: I'm six feet two inches tall people are frequently surprised by that because on the internet everyone is the same height (laughs) but um that is another like defining characteristic of my life I think it's something that I talk about pretty much every day that I leave my house and some days that I don't like today
1: to leave Iowa and headed down to Missouri to attend journalism school at Mizzou. Nice choice, Ann.
0: I was absolutely sure that what I wanted to do was be a journalist, which I think is probably my greatest unfair advantage. I know a lot of people who are great journalists who just started years or decades later and so are at different points in their career. And I got a little bit of a head start because I decided so young what I wanted to do. People ask a lot, should I go to journalism school? I'm not sure that I have a strong answer for everyone, for everything that was great about journalism school that I learned, like how to basically structure a story and how to not be scared of talking to strangers and picking up a phone. I also had to deprogram a lot of things I learned, such as, you know, your opinion is not relevant. Your opinion doesn't matter. Or you should do everything you can to hide your point of view about something. This idea that stories can be balanced by interviewing two people with seemingly opposing viewpoints. All of that is stuff that I feel like is totally irrelevant to the way I make my living and do my job now, and not because I am not a journalist and not because I don't have journalistic ethics, but because that way of thinking about reporting the news and telling stories is pretty outdated. And also a, thing that, a way that people don't really want to get their news anymore. I mean, most people, yes, there's a sense of I want my news to, to be fair-minded and well-researched and well-reported, but also this idea that the reporter will remove his or herself completely from the story and just fade into the background is not really realistic.
2: But it took a little while for Anne to realize this. She did some internships at newspapers, but she really didn't love that medium of journalism. And then she started a paid internship at the communications department of a women's rights nonprofit.
0: In that time period, I met two women, Vanessa and Jessica Valenti, who founded a blog called Feministing. And they were like, you can write for it. We just started it. And I was like, blogs are for nerds. And uh, but I don't have any outlet for my writing. I work work at a nonprofit where I have to write press releases all day. I'm going to forget how to write. That's where I sort of realized that your interests and point of view are things that are very powerful in telling a story or in shaping it. It was really my involvement with feministing that led to me getting an internship at Mother Jones magazine, which is a great example of a place that has an ideological point of view, but is doing work that is reporting-based and fact-based.
2: But this was pre-Twitter.
0: It was even when we first started before anyone, save for like Harvard students, was on Facebook.
2: Back when Anne didn't have 42,000 followers reading her daily musings.
0: It was this weird little interim period where the internet was around and you could start your own thing for relatively cheap or free, but it was not the social sort of, I don't know, tsunami (laughs) that we live in now. I, I think that was like another huge piece of luck for me that I started writing like at the ground floor of a lot of the stuff that is now super mainstream and that are tools that all journalists use.
2: It wasn't long after Twitter emerged that Anne fell hard for the internet. She started understanding how to talk to people through these mediums. For example, not just retweeting a headline or someone's statement, but making her Twitter feed match the way she actually talks to people. She remembers being inspired when she saw reporter Mac McClellan live-tweeting from the BP oil spill.
1: Anne also remembers being bored with her day job. While sitting at her computer, she joined Tumblr and started blogging and having fun with it, like making comments on the news with GIFs. So she was experimenting, playing around. And after all, what did she have to lose? It was in these ways that she started developing the many voices of Anne.
0: I think I've had a lot of different voices at different stages in my career. And that is something that I think a lot of journalists would tell you that they, whether they've been on staff or they've been primarily affiliated with a blog or you know, you tend to adopt the tone of the publication that you're writing for primarily. So when I wrote for Feministing, it was with this group of kind of a fluctuating group of women between like five and ten other women, and we would we would sort of develop our own tone. You know, their early early days on on the blog, I forget. I, I recently had to look something up, and we had this tendency to to bold the sort of takeaway sentence or the our our, our main point. And part of our thing was like, you know, we weren't afraid to swear, you know, the <laughs> which is like so funny now that the idea was that that felt bad still it makes us sound like such Pollyannas. But yeah, so it was a, I feel like I swore more and I, I did this weird bolding sentences thing and my voice was different just because of the group of people I was writing with. And then uh, for sort of a middle chunk of my career, I lived in D.C. and I worked at a magazine called The American Prospect, which is a politics and policy magazine that no one there would have told me, be more serious if I had written something closer to the voice I use when I write now. But I think I felt very insecure about my place in that publication and, in general, my place in DC and how much I knew about policy. And as a way of covering for that, I was like, I'm going to write very seriously so people know I'm a serious person who researched this. And I'm, ser- I'm so serious. No.
2: One of those serious moments is here, on MSNBC, from, from February 2011.
0: ...gynecological exams, cervical cancer tests, UTI treatments, and the full panoply of women's health services that Planned Parenthood provides. Joining me now is Ann Friedman, contributing editor and columnist for The American Prospect. She also blogs at TheGreatFeministing.com. Ann, how are you? I'm livid. Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about why you're livid because I'm livid too. I mean, one of the things I think in terms of the context here is that there is this clearly coordinated attack across a, a variety of sort of venues and platforms against Planned Parenthood. What is going on here? I mean, maybe it's that we need to talk more about uh, how many women see Planned Parenthood for core services. I mean, this is personal. I and every woman I know, just about every woman I know, has been to Planned Parenthood for pap smears, for contraception. For, I think it's tough um, like, to like really embody that nice. everything that it means to be a woman in your 20s. <laughs> the, the slang and the way you actually talk to your friends, but also the stuff you care about and still be taken seriously because sexism and ageism. <laughs> I almost aged into being able to be a little bit more authentic. And I also sort of have the freedom now as a freelancer because I write for so many different places. I don't really have the pressure to adopt the voice of one of them. If I have a personal editorial philosophy, it's to like talk to other people like they are friends or as smart as I am or as consuming the same pop culture that I am. I like to make the assumption that everyone is on my level, or if you're reading me, you're like, okay, we, ser- we share some assumptions about equality or <laughs> the fact that you can make jokes and still be a serious person. I try to give that benefit of the doubt to the people who are presumably reading the things that I write, and that, that also informs my tone. The gap between the tone of the emails I write for friends and the things I write publicly has just gotten increasingly smaller the longer my career goes on. So I think part of that is a privilege of age, part of it is a privilege of being a freelancer, and part of it is just, I don't know, maybe just lessons learned over time.
2: So Anne has her personal voice in her writing and her gifts, but also in her pie charts. And for those of you who haven't seen the pie charts, let's take a little journey on her website. Oh, I like this one. I like this one a lot. Okay. Um, How are we preparing dinner? 20%. Having a glass of wine while we think about it. 20%. Eating half a bag of... TJ's trail mix. Trail mix. Just to tide us over. Trader Joe's trail mix just to tide us over. 20%. Cursing our inability to shop for more than one meal at a time. 20%. Flirting with the idea of getting Thai food delivered. 20%. 16 tabs. Opening 16 (laughs) tabs of recipes we're too lazy to attempt. This is my life every night. I feel like... So... And that's why Anne's stuff is so great. Is because it's a simple pie chart in her handwriting, and she started doing these on her own. But everybody can relate to these. Maybe not everybody, but most of yeah, us. Yeah, they're they're
1: pretty funny, but they comment on something pretty real, and relatable. Those are Anne Friedman pie charts in a nutshell.
2: you create value out of seemingly mundane or like (laughs) pop culture-y types of things that may be seen as a certain way. They're like a, it's like a beautiful little doorway into like a nice piece of writing, a piece of advice, a perspective, whatever it may be. And I'm wondering if you can talk about like the role of pop culture and why that's important in your journalism and in your writing. And
0: I mean, I I don't think that, um, I am an ambassador for being Up to date on all things pop culture. However, I do think that people who, again, are smart people who are, you know, reading the New York Times, but also like watching Keeping Up with the Kardashians don't just watch those shows and think, I don't know, just turn off their brains and watch them. They're still asking questions like, you know, I ask the question all the time. Oh, my God, is it so isn't it so creepy how Kanye is like shaping Kim's aesthetic, which is dumb. I obviously don't know anything about the personal dynamics of Kim Ye, But these are like questions that I ask myself. I'm like, is that kind of control? Is that like, you know, um, and and that's a real thing that, you know kind of applies to the way people look at their personal relationships. You know, a friend of yours starts dating some dude who has a strong personality, and you're like, is he steamrolling her? Is it just me or does she seem more quiet than the last time we hung out? I don't know. I mean, in some ways, you process pop culture in a way that you process everything else. And I would never argue that an aside about what Kim Kardashian is wearing these days is as important as updating people about you know pending abortion legislation or something i don't i don't but i also think that there doesn't have to be a strict hierarchy you can you can sort of acknowledge that people are consuming all of these different things and they are smart thinking people who would be interested in new ways of thinking about all that stuff that they're consuming
1: So taking this idea of fusing pop culture, politics, and journalism, Anne quit her serious job in D.C. She packed up her car and took a road trip to California in 2011. But during this blissful unemployment era, she got a job offer to be the executive editor of Good Magazine, a publication who, quote, was for people who give a damn. Its founders, a billionaire, and his two friends were looking for someone to infuse some credibility and journalism into their print and online services. Anne was an obvious choice. She shared her philosophy for leading good at the Power of
2: Narrative Conference in 2013.
0: So I had, I had three big theories about making a quality magazine in the digital era. And one is, is, is just about personality. Magazines, I've always believed, are the people who make them. And this has always been true, but um, the rise of social media means writers and editors are more public-facing than ever. And increasingly, people connect with and engage with and trust other people, as opposed to sort of an institution or a brand. And uh, anyway, and the other thing too, is that smart magazines have um, a collective purpose, a collective personality, a point of view, a unique but unified outlook on the world, and a reason for readers to engage with them. So I set about to hire people who loved reporting, writing and the Internet. Um, and, you know, after all, hiring people to make a magazine with me was essentially inviting them into what had become a pretty serious relationship with my now live-in lover the internet. Like in my She bed hired
2: individuals night, you know. who understood um, <laughs> how to have their own voice I, uh, in journalism. I hired people who she was to the editor for a little over a year. And Good Magazine made great work. They had loyal readers and followers.
0: But then, things changed. And then my bosses decided that they didn't want to be a magazine, they wanted to be a social network. Um, which means they didn't need editors, they needed curators and community managers. So they fired us all together, which is the best thing that could have happened. Getting fired, if you're gonna get fired, get fired in a group. I'm grateful every day they didn't just fire me because otherwise people would be like, what happened with Anne and her bosses? Like, it sounds like maybe she was like a little, you know, wasn't working out, I don't know when you're all fired together it's pretty clear what happened and um and that is that they didn't like any of you or they wanted to do something totally different and so it was the best the best possible outcome of like a not great situation
2: how old were you when that happened
0: i was 30. what was your reaction i think it's pretty as, as an industry opinion it's a pretty widely held opinion that my bosses were stupid for firing us all um, because that that is an incredible group of people who have all gone on to do fantastic things independently, and I don't know. I mean, now they're trying to be a magazine again, so you know, just like it's it's all it's all cyclical. And I feel like I learned some important lessons about in terms of vocabulary they used and their values. They had a lot in common with you know sort of startup owners or like new. a lot of these like next generation media bosses and so I kind of I feel like I also learned some early lessons about what it's like to deal with bosses who are steeped in that culture All right. so what were your next steps after that um I hung out in my house I went to Joshua Tree I got stoned I like I did a lot of I had like a couple of good weeks of like of like good relaxation
1: soaked up all the relaxing time she could. And then she got back to work. She and her former Good collaborators got together and made a single issue of a magazine they called Tomorrow. They set up a Kickstarter campaign to fund this project, and they met their fundraising goal of $45,000 within five hours.
2: This is because Good readers were outraged when the team got fired, and they showed this via social media and through action. They discontinued their subscription. And so when the ex-Gooders did their campaign, their loyal readers were there in a heartbeat to support them.
1: Editors in the media took note of the team's firing an initiative and initiative, answered getting job offers and various opportunities. The Columbia Journalism Review asked her to transform her Tumblr gift blog, Real Talk from Your Editor, into a weekly column. New York magazine was reinvesting in the cut, and they
2: asked Anne to come on as a weekly columnist to write about topics concerning women. Now that she had two weekly opportunities, she started considering freelancing a bit more seriously.
0: And I sort of was like, okay, well, if I did these two things every week plus like three other things. But like, you know, if if I just did these two things, then I could make rent. And then I would know that like, you know, that would be enough to sort of simulate the stability of a paycheck. I, I think like a year later, I, I realized, I was like, oh, this is my career, I'm a freelance writer. <laughs> there was a whole year period where people would ask what I did and I was like, well, I'm an editor, but I'm kind of just writing right now. Or I would say, you know, something kind of dismissive like that. Yeah. Uh,
2: yeah. Did you ever think about going back to like a full-time job after you got a taste of freelancing?
0: I did, and there were definitely some jobs that I thought about or entertained, but they were all in New York, and I don't really want to live in New York. And then just the longer I work for myself, the happier I am.
2: Can you talk about your practices that you do or structure that you have to create for yourself to be successful as a freelancer?
0: Uh, I mean, I feel like I'm still learning. I, 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 I think every year is a new set of things that, that I wish I had known when I, when I started freelancing. So practice-wise, I know that I write best in the morning. So I do my I do what I can to schedule interviews in the afternoon. I've stopped caring about the time gap between the coasts. I don't wake up and feel panic that there's a lot of email waiting for me. That's just the way it is. Email's always waiting for you. <laughs> um, West Coast, I think, forces you to be a little more zen about that. I've always been pretty decent about tracking my assignments and what money is where. I mean, I could walk to my computer and tell you down to the dollar how much money I'm owed, how much of that has been invoiced, how much of that has yet to be invoiced, how much of you know, how much of that I haven't filed yet. There's sort of like that whole spectrum is tracked well. And
2: you have amazing clients, I guess, that work with you to publish your work. How much of that work is you pitching? How much is it coming to you? And how does that work in terms of getting new people? Um, and your pie charts, I guess, yeah. are also a thing.
0: First of all, thank you for referring to publications as clients, because that is that is exactly the world in which you live if you're a freelancer. Most of the work I do is I will pitch the specific idea, but with guidance or prompts from an editor somewhere. I will have lunch with an editor when I'm in New York, and she says, we're looking for more stuff that's sort of about tech, and I'll go to my ideas document, which is in simple note and say, do I have anything here now? Okay. If I do, maybe I'll throw it at her and be like, I was thinking about writing about so-and-so, or have you heard about this? And see if she looks interested. Or what I'll do is I'll make a note, like pitch tech ideas to so-and-so, and then go back over email once I'm home and send her ideas. So it's like, you know, it's not really a cold pitch, but it's it's sort of a guided pitch. And that's how my column every week at New York works. Every once in a while, they're like, we'd like you to write about Hillary or whatever it might be. I I always have the option to say no, but most weeks I pitch them, you know, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And they have to approve it. And sometimes, like any pitch, they say no to things where I'm like, fools. (laughs) That was a great idea. It is sometimes the case as well that editors will come to me with things. I wouldn't be able to make it work if no work ever came to me without me pitching it. Like, if I had to pitch everything I did, I, I think that it would not be feasible.
1: Because Anne works from home in L.A., She spends a lot of time maintaining relationships with New York editors and uses the biweekly podcast and her weekly newsletters and columns to stay active in the industry. You may be listening and thinking, how? How has she been
2: able to establish herself as a weekly contributor to so many publications? And so we asked her, where and how did she get all of her amazing clients? The answer is simple, but not a fast and cheap trick. The answer is time.
0: Well, I think the important thing to remember is that I'm 33 years old and I've been doing, like I've been in journalism for 10 years. So that's just important context in terms of the number of people I know. If you do anything for a decade and you don't know a lot of people um, who do that same thing, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> so I think in some ways I'm not that remarkable. But I did I did meet a lot of people when I was on staff as an editor. I met other editors as their peer and um, I think that was really helpful. Something that I always try to say to people who don't have a lot of contacts yet is first of all, make friends with and consider the people who are immediately around you as your colleagues, not your bosses, not people like me or you who you just listen to on a podcast, but like who do you know right now and how can you invest in their career and how can you get them to help invest in yours? Maybe it's making something together on the side, like feministing, which I did for six years and which directly led to me getting work and led to people knowing my name and, um, was a thing I did unpaid with a group of friends for years. Um, and it was not always easy, but we had a group accountability and, you know, there's a lot of great things in my career that sort of fit that model. Pie charts are a similar one. I just started making them and was not paid for them. And it was like a weird side thing that I did for a long time before anyone paid me for them. Consistency really goes a long way. You know, I'm sure that you guys have found this with the podcast too. It's like if people know where to find you repeatedly and and you are personally invested in like the quality of what you're putting out week in and week out or episode in and episode out, then you prove to future employers that you can do it. And I don't think that means write for free for like thought catalog. That's really different than what I'm talking about. I think trying to find ways to like on a project basis or, you know, with sort of like an editorial, like, like point of view behind it to make stuff on consistently with a group of people that you can point to and say like, hey, pay me to do this thing. I've showed you that I could do it is something that has been true throughout my career, whether I realized I was doing it or not. And you'll meet people through that process as well. It's like you and I now know each other because you interviewed me for this podcast. That like that's a much better connection than if you sent me a cold email and were like Hey, and will you share your processes for freelancing? I would be like, okay, now you're in the, the morass of 70 emails I haven't yet to answer. To people. Right, I mean, no, it's like, don't start a podcast just to interview me, so you can, that would be bad. But.
2: Um, right, no, I'm at take yeah. note on sending lit, like I get questions, I did this project, and
0: people are like, how did you make this? I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Right. Like, it was like a three-year process. Right, <laughs> right, don't, that's actually a great, a great, people think networking is sometimes just sending an email and like being like hi I'm young and hungry can you help me and I want to reply to those people and say I've done tons of interviews about this there's an an extensive FAQ section on my website I wrote a column that media advice column for the Columbia Journalism Review for years if you are not finding that and reading it on your own and asking me a question that I have not yet addressed you are gonna be at the bottom of that 70 email pile and I, I will write back to you something that's sort of generally encouraging that says check out my work in all these other places. But, you know, it's kind of (laughs) rude. And it's not the best way for you to make a connection with someone or to like get to know people.
2: So take note folks, do your research and respect people's time. And as she said, Anne almost always takes the time to respond to those frustrating emails from people who are looking for guidance, but haven't quite done their homework first. After all, she's been there, on the other side of things.
0: Like sometimes what you're looking for is not the kind of thing you can just Google. Sometimes you're just looking for someone to be like, Um, you have to make something you can't just complain you have to like do the thing that you say you want to do and good luck with that like that's that's I would say eighty percent of the emails I send to people are just like you have to like make the thing you say that you want someone to pay you to make sometimes before you can get them to pay you for it (laughs) you have to prove you can do it and prove it to yourself too and it's also um, I got this
2: I was living in Miami previous, like just like last week. I just moved, but um, I don't live anywhere. I like live out in my car right now. But uh, I've been there. Yeah, I choose. It's a choice. Yeah. But um, uh, so this this girl, she was 17 and she emailed me and she like had the sweetest emails. Like she could tell, I could tell she looked at my work and she was like, I was just hoping you could meet for a coffee. I, I saw you went to Emerson mm-hmm. and um, I would just, I'm I applied and I got um put on like the waiting list or whatever and so we met and then um later she followed up with an email asking if I could write a recommendation letter for her and I was like that's good like that's bold of her Mm -hmm. to just like we only met once and I wrote it and she got in like she got taken off the wait list and so that's like a it was a really good example after all these like I don't I don't know it was nice right it's nice when you could give in my opinion, give back because I had so many people along the way that were like mentors to me.
0: Yeah. And I think that that relationship doesn't have to always be like a mentor mentee relationship. There's a lot of instances where you're like, oh, yeah, like this, this feels really good to be able to like have a concrete thing come of like kind of a nebulous relationship that we had that like this, this woman asking you for help. Um, being able to sort of say, yeah, like I think it is an obligation also of people who are successful to pass along what they know to other people. And I think that you are obligated to be nice to people who are struggling and early in their career. Like I think it's an obligation. I don't I don't think it's like charity to be nice because, you know, the other thing, too, is that um, I will be old someday. I will be irrelevant. I'm really aware that the places that employ me now not all of them, but, you know, I can still review books and probably write about media for decades as long as I sort of stay up to date on what's happening in the world. But, you know, something like The Cut, The Cut is not a magazine for women in their 40s and 50s, you know? I mean, like when I look at a lot of the, the options for when I think like like decades to come for my career like I mean I'm gonna be working forever let's be real <laughs> like I save for retirement but not enough and when I look at the prospects for like older women being seen as culturally relevant and important I see fewer job prospects for myself and I'm sort of like okay well let's do the math if I answer 150 emails a year from up-and-coming journalists which I think I, or I answered about a hundred last year then that's that many people who will at least open my email when I'm destitute and older and like see Seen is less relevant. Excuse me. Seen is less relevant by the industry <laughs> than it's like sort of the, my my like retirement insurance. I like that. So anyone I've ever replied to, you're not obligated to give me a job, but you are obligated to open my email and reply to me when I'm old. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, I like it. It's building a network. Yeah, exactly. My future network. It's the same thing, exactly. You never stop. if you're good, you never stop building a network. It's not like a thing you do until you're like, I don't know successful whatever that means it's the thing you do your whole career
1: by diverse forms of media. She's a fan of Vantage, the photography magazine on Medium, as well as a $2 a month subscriber to the New Inquiry. She still has that healthy reading appetite she did as a kid, but she's also interested in other forms, beyond print and online publications.
0: I'm really interested in podcasts, like as a medium. Anne says Call Your Girlfriend allows
1: her a different kind of connection with her audience.
0: It's true what everybody always says, that podcasts are a super intimate medium. There are definitely things I've written where people will write me a letter and be like, oh, my God, you spoke to me in a very deep way, in a way that felt like, you know, we made a very personal connection. They don't say this literally, but, you know, I mean, but incredible emails to get as a writer. And I would say we get triple the amount of those emails for the podcast, which I mean, I think is part of it is because it's like me and another incredible woman who are like both, you know, supporting each other and modeling in some ways the kind of behavior that like you know like a lot of women want to see in the world but it's also because having someone in your ears is a very intimate experience you know it's like it's people are listening to us on their commutes and in private spaces in their house and um, that just feels different than reading something
1: Anne has some short-term life goals though she admits she's not much of a goal setter one of those potential goals is to learn to play the piano
0: I do have kind of like a like an old-fashioned cocktail party vision of like me like with like playing the piano with some like some fr- some drunk friends singing along. That's like a that's like a weird fantasy that I have. It sounds a little simple to just say I want to get better at the things that I already do, but I do. <laughs> that's really what it is. It's like every little thing that I do, I would like to get better at it. I still feel pretty new to freelancing and pretty new to most of the things that I do. I mean it's been like at most two and a half years probably more like two and that isn't that is not a lot of time um, When I think about where I was after my first two years as an editor I was like ha like I have so much to learn so I can only imagine where I'll be in another in another two years because we
1: were like.
2: Thanks, Anne, for sharing your advice and freelancing tips. It's good to know that someone as successful as Anne is still figuring it out, just like the rest of us. Find her on Twitter at Anne Friedman and her podcast at Call YRGF, Call Your Girlfriend. Visit our website for links to Anne's writing.
1: She Does is a part of Slate's Panoply Network, and this episode was produced by us, Sarah Ginsberg. And Elaine Sheldon. And sound designs by Billy Rasnick.
2: And I feel like we need to tell our listeners a little bit about Billy because he's awesome and he's the sound designer on almost all my projects. He's amazing. Yeah. He has a project going on right now called Slow Media and you can look it up at slo.media and it's all... It's a revolution. Yeah, it's a revolution. It's all about slow, the sort of the Norwegian founded um, slow film movement. Um, And Billy does these amazing like one hour takes of floating on a raft down the river and all kinds of other interesting things. And he'll be doing an exhibit in Miami at Filmgate, where we will also be doing a live event in February. So check out Billy.
1: We also have a live event in just two days. That's true. It's in Columbia, Missouri, and it's called Citizen Jane Film Festival. And we'll be talking with Allison Bagnall, Catherine Dudley-Rose, and Mo Scarpelli. They're all filmmakers. And our music makers from episode 16, Dub Nub, will be performing live before and after the show. And they just actually came out with a brand new album that you should get into. It's called It's Weird in This World. You can find it on Bandcamp. And the music you heard in this episode is by a fun group of girls called Heinz. They're from Barcelona, and we had a little talk with them. So join us next week for their episode. Also, for any
2: filmmakers that are out there, I'm happy to be judging Film Convert's 2015 film competition. So if you use Film Convert and you have a documentary or a music video or a fiction film, submit your film at filmconvert.com slash competition underscore 2015 by November 1st.
1: Thank you for listening to She
2: Does.